Today it's going to be essentially an introduction, it's going to be laying foundations for what's to come, and then next week we jump in to the first of our parables. Great to see you, and uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, very, very warm welcome. If you have your Bibles, we're going to read uh, a few verses from uh, Matthew chapter 13. I'll put the words on screen as well. Matthew 13, verse 10. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken away from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, Understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Let's pray together, shall we? Dear Lord, this morning we just pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear sensitive hearts and obedient spirits, we pray. Amen. Amen. As I was saying a few moments ago, today is the first in a series of talks uh, on stories old and new, and uh, I've entitled this morning's uh, talk, Stories of Revolution, and uh, that will become plain, hopefully it will anyway, later on. And we are going to use the parables and understand them and the contemporary relevance for us living as Christians in the 21st century. Now we know that uh, Jesus was the master storyteller. He, he spoke to uh, ordinary people just in ordinary ways, ordinary terms. He, his stories reflected the world in which he lived. Stories about family life like the rebel son who came back home again. Stories of agriculture and a natural world. Stories about soil and plants and fig trees and vineyards and fishermen. Stories about trade and commerce, about weddings and politics. And people, when they heard him, it says in Matthew chapter 7 that they were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. Matthew also tells us in Matthew chapter 13, verse 34, that Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. Now, I think Matthew is probably exaggerating just a little bit there, and he is doing it for effect, because what Matthew is actually saying to us, and he's making a strong point about this, is that this is the key way in which Jesus spoke to his disciples and to the crowds in his day. That's the way that he communicated his message. 
So let's pause there for a moment and ask ourselves two questions. <clears throat> question one, what are parables? And question two, what was Jesus' message? What was the central core of his teaching through those parables? But first question, what are the parables? Let me start telling you by what parables are not. They're not what our Sunday school teachers told us, earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. How many of you were in Sunday school many years ago and you heard, yes, we, we, we've all heard that, I think. Um, if they were earthly stories with a heavenly meaning, then probably it's more by accident, by coincidence, than anything else. Actually, some of the stories that Jesus told were actually the other way around. They were heavenly stories with an earthly uh, meaning, such as the story in Luke chapter 16 of Lazarus and the rich man, where Jesus tells on the goings-on in the afterlife and, and the bearing, actually, that it had to our lives here. And we're going to have some fun with that one in a few weeks' time. Incidentally, by the way, if, uh, if you're a Sunday school teacher, thank you so much. Thank you. And, you know, we have so many people involved in our church in the work with Kids Zone and many other ministries with children and young people. From the very bottom of my heart, thank you for all that you do, for all that you're putting in to the, the lives of children. The second um, thing that uh, they're not. They're not illustrations to help us understand the, the teaching of Jesus a little bit better. Now, I think that most preachers use um, stories or use humor to help their congregation sometimes understand the more tricky, intricate, biblical concepts that we find. And some people believe that that's what Jesus was doing. He was trying to use these parables, these stories, in order to help people understand his message, make it a bit easier for them. As the old song says, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down in a most delightful way. And some people think that the parables were a little bit like that. They were there in order to help us understand a little bit better. And that's really not what Jesus is doing in the parables. Why do I say that? Well, I've been reading and studying the parables for about 40 years now. And I'm still wondering what some of them mean. You see, at the same time, I'm drawn to them. I am intrigued. I can't let them go. I'm fascinated by them, captivated by them, absorbed, charmed by them. But I'd be the first to admit that they're not always easy to understand. And now for the second question. What was, if Jesus spoke in parables, that was his main way of communicating what was it that was his main uh, teaching point? Um, what was core? What was central to his message? Can any of you tell me? You can talk back. What was central to Jesus' message? Don't all look at your shoes. Relationship with God? Any other thoughts? Sorry? The kingdom of heaven. Who said that? Brian, well done. Yes. Now, you're not far away in what you were saying, but the kingdom was the central part of Jesus' teaching. Either the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, they are synonyms. They are saying essentially the same thing. Uh, the phrase, the kingdom of God, is found mainly in Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel, whereas Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven as his term. And the reason that he does that, that Matthew is writing 
to Jewish people. And Jewish people of that particular time, they uh, wouldn't ever pronounce the name of God. God's name was so holy that the people wouldn't even say it. So Matthew, in preference to the people that he's writing to, the Jews, he is just using a different word. But essentially the same thing. Now, in answer to my question, I wouldn't have been surprised, actually, if we'd had a number of different answers to that. Because... In a sense, yes, you are right in what you're saying. That is very, very central in what Jesus is saying. But it is not the most central message. And if somebody had said to me, love, again, think of all the, 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 the aspects of love that Jesus spoke of. God's love to us, our love to others, our love to our neighbors, even our enemies. And yet, none of those things, although I would say that they're embraced within this whole concept of the kingdom, Jesus' teaching about the kingdom was central to everything he taught. And I would say right at the start of this series, if we do not understand Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, then we cannot properly understand Jesus' message. The kingdom is mentioned 55 times in Matthew, 20 times in Mark. Mark's a much smaller gospel. 46 times in Luke. It took me ages to count them. It really did. And John only mentions it five times. And the reason for that is that John uses another term instead. So what we're going to do, just for a few minutes, we're going to do a little bit of a Bible study. I say what we're laying foundations this morning. We're going to do a whistle-stop tour in Matthew's Gospel. And in Matthew's Gospel, right at the start, there are the, there's the birth narratives of Jesus. And then shortly after that, we're introduced to his Cousin, John, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, this uh, guy who was also known as the Baptist or the Baptizer, John the Baptist we would know him as. He's a wild man, he's living in the desert, his clothes are made of camel hair and he ate wild locusts. Some people like that in Tamworth actually, but there we go. I won't say which district. The prophet Isaiah prophesied about this man who was to come hundreds of years before, saying that he was going to be a forerunner of the Messiah. You see, in ancient times, um, needless to say, people didn't have telephones or emails or social media. And if an important person was coming to town or into your city, another person would be sent on ahead, the forerunner. And John was the forerunner to announce the special arrival of Jesus. And John's message was this. Chapter 3, verse 2. Repent or turn around. For what? The kingdom of heaven is near. So he's the forerunner. He's mentioning this special message to the people. And that's his message. Now in the following chapter, chapter 4, after Jesus is baptized by John and, uh, and tempted in the wilderness, uh, we read... From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, turn around, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So again, from the lips of Jesus, we hear the same message as John the Baptist. And um, then going on to verse 23 of the same chapter, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. 
and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And then we come to chapter 5, and you probably know your Bibles that in chapter 5, 6, and 7 is what is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. And in the blessed sayings, you know the blessed sayings, the Beatitudes, the first and the last have to do also with the kingdom. The first is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then the last in verse 10 of chapter 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there are many other mentions of the kingdom of heaven in these three chapters and throughout Matthew's gospel. Let's move on a little bit. Are you still with me? Good. Chapter 13. And in chapter 13, we find seven parables given in quick succession. And uh, Jesus told the disciples about uh, a farmer planting seeds in chapter 13, verse 19. And he says, the seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message about the kingdom and don't understand it. I just wonder if that might include some of us this morning in our number that we are hearing this message of the kingdom and we are not really understanding it that we hear the message of the kingdom. We didn't realize the prominence and how central this was to Jesus. And therefore, it's a bit of an eye-opener to us this morning, perhaps. Maybe we've not realized how central it was before. Verse 24, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in the field. But that night, uh, as the workers slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat. And then slipped away. Verse 31. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a field. Verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast a woman used in baking bread. Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net that was thrown into the water and caught fish of every kind. Okay, some of you might be saying, okay, Steve, okay, 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 we, we, we get it, we get it. Uh, Jesus spoke an awful lot about the kingdom. It's central to Jesus. But what on earth is the kingdom of God or this kingdom of heaven? Jesus keeps on telling us what it's like but he doesn't tell us what it is. Very annoying, isn't it? Very, very annoying, that. We'll come back to that in a moment. Now, some Christians, uh, they start reading this phrase in Matthew's Gospel, uh, this, this phrase, Kingdom of Heaven, and they think that it means heaven. You know, the place that Christians believe that when we leave this earth, we will be in heaven with the Lord But that isn't what Jesus is referring to here. The kingdom of heaven includes the heavenly kingdom. But what Jesus was speaking about was far, far greater and more extensive than merely what happens to us once this life on earth is over. Now, some of you, I I, I guess, are probably thinking, Steve, I thought this new series was on the parables of Jesus. When are we going to start talking about the Good Samaritan and the, the lost son and the lost coin and the man, you know, who built his house on the sand? 
Well, as I say, we're going to be doing that over the next 10 weeks. But what we are trying to do today is lay foundation so that we have a proper understanding. You know, with the parables, they're not just individual stories uh, with some kind of moral teaching or meaning to them. There's far more than meets the eye going on here when we see the parables. And by understanding the central core of Jesus' teaching, it will give us eyes to see some of the stuff. We will read those parables in the next few weeks in a totally new way. So, what are the parables? Well, they were what was used by Jesus to convey what his central message was. What was his central message? It was the message of the kingdom. How do we understand that? Well, we need to take a journey, which we're going to do this morning. We're going to take a journey back into the first century uh, world in Israel. So let's, let's do that. I'm sure that many of us have asked, if God is in control, then why does the world have so much wrong with it? Yeah? Why is there terrorism? Why are there natural disasters? Why does God allow terrible accidents to occur? Why do old ladies get beaten up and robbed in their homes? How can God be in control? Or better still, is this question. In which way is God supposed to be in control? Now, if you were a first century Jew living in the time of Jesus you probably would have asked that question too. The nation of Israel believed itself to be God's own special people. Yet, they had been under foreign occupation for about 600 years before this time. Since 586 BC, a succession of world powers came in and ruled them. Can you imagine that? They were thinking, well, we've got special people. How can this be? How can all these foreigners come in and rule over us? We're God's people. First it was the Babylonians. And then there was another world power, the Medo-Persian kingdom. And then after that, there were the Greek kingdom. And after that, we had the, um, the Romans. And it all seemed very, very wrong to the Jews. They were God's own nation, God's chosen people. Why should these pagans come in and rule over them? It didn't make sense. These other people had false religions. Ruling over those who worship the one true God. Shouldn't happen, shouldn't be. In their own scriptures, the Torah, our Old Testament, foretold of a coming, coming a day when God would once again reign supremely on earth. That he would send the Messiah, that he would bring deliverance and justice and peace, that he would have God's rule on earth. And in this time of Israel's history, as today probably, the Jews told and retold many of these great stories of faith from their Torah. And despite many setbacks and disappointments, like the time that the whole nation was annexed in, um, in Babylon, they still believed that their God would eventually win the day and Israel would come through. And the greatest story of all for the Jewish person was the story of the Exodus. 1,500 years before the time of Jesus, Moses had led the Israelites out from slavery in Egypt across the Red Sea, which opened miraculously for them. 
They went through the desert and came to the promised land. An amazing deliverance. And if you understand the Exodus, then you understand an awful lot about Judaism. And again, they celebrated the Passover, which was celebrating the feast of what happened at that time. To put it simply, the Jews of Jesus' day believed that they are God had made the world and remained in charge of it, even though they were virtually slaves in their own land. They believed that God, they are God, Yahweh, would come to their rescue and he would send the Messiah. Then something happened. Jesus arrives on the scene. And Jesus started proclaiming this message of his. The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of God is near. Get ready, God's kingdom is arriving. And you can just imagine the stir that this would have caused. At last, at last, after all these years, Israel's God is now on the move. Many of the Jews wondered uh, whether this was the time and whether this young preacher could be the Messiah. Now, all of this might seem a little bit far-fetched from us, from what we are understanding, because we don't talk about kings and kingdoms these days, really, because we have a queen, and in years to come, we will have a king again. And, you know, our kings and queens, they are constitutional monarchs, aren't they? They don't have any real power, like the power and the authority that the ancient kings had. They had the power over life or death. And some of you might even regard royalty as rather old-fashioned institution in our modern world. But in Jesus' day, kings had significant power. People like Herod the Great. Now, he was the guy who ordered the slaughter of babies in Bethlehem when he heard that there was another king who was born there. The guy was politically and militarily extremely dangerous. In fact, he was utterly ruthless and eliminated anyone who was seen as a threat to his kingdom, including members of his own family. In fact, I might have told you this before on some other occasion. There was a saying going around in those days that it was much safer to be Herod's pig than his son. And... There's a lovely play on words actually in Greek because the word for pig and son are almost identical. But it was safer to be Herod's pig than his son because some of his sons he killed because in a jealous rage because he thought that they were trying to win his throne. So if this idea of kings and kingdoms, because Jesus was speaking about the kingdom of God, if they are a little bit dated, what kind of modern analogy might help us to understand this teaching that Jesus gave on the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. What modern analogy would do it for us? Well, I'd like to suggest to you that whenever we read the word kingdom in the New Testament, we should think of another word, and it's this word. It's the revolution. The kingdom of God becomes the revolution of God. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So what he is saying there, what Jesus is saying is that God's revolution has come near. And to join this revolution, you need to turn your lives around and put your trust in God and believe in Christ. 
Now, revolution, you may think that's a bit of a strange word for us to use when we're speaking of God's kingdom. We hear about half a dozen uh, revolutions every year, don't we, on, on the news channels that are going on in various parts of the world as people attempt to bring some kind of regime change through violence. So when Jesus is speaking about the kingdom being near, he is saying that God's kingdom, that revolution that has been told for hundreds of years is about to happen. And the Jews thought that it was going to be brought about by the sword, as most other revolutions are brought about, but that wasn't what Jesus planned. Jesus had a far bigger revolution in mind. God's revolution was going to be the total overthrow of Satan and all that is evil, bringing heaven, heaven's revolution onto earth. Jesus taught his disciples in his day to pray, and, and we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this revolution, this God's revolution, would not be through force of military might, but it would be through prayer and through love for others and through turning the other cheek and going the second mile and doing to others what you would have them do to you and through suffering and through death. Brian McLaren in his book, Secret uh, Message of uh, Jesus, writes this. If you got a glimpse of soldiers in camouflage uniforms with rifles sneaking through the outlaying country villages, and if you notice military planes from another country flying above your own, and if key political leaders in your country disappeared or are mysteriously assassinated, you might be correct to suspect that an invasion is coming. If bullets start flying and bomb sirens start going off, your suspicions would be fulfilled in that another nation, call it a kingdom, is preparing to invade and conquer our kingdom. But what if this kingdom that is invading is a kingdom of a very different sort? What if the invasion is one of kindness and compassion rather than force and aggression? What if sick people start getting well suddenly and inexplicably? What if there is news of alcoholics leaving their drink and becoming good husbands and fathers? And those teenage sons and daughters no longer party till they drop or sleep around and take drugs, but become a joy to their parents rather than a constant worry? What if the poor and needy, the fatherless and the widow are cared for and helped emotionally and practically in ways previously unknown? Wouldn't all these things be the sign of an invasion? A different sort of an invasion. The coming of another sort of kingdom. And you see, God's kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus spoke about, was an invasion of earth by heaven. And Jesus' extraordinary miracles were evidence of that. So when John the Baptist had doubts about Jesus, remember the time that he was in prison, and Jesus tells John's disciples, go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk, and those that have leprosy are healed, and the deaf hear and the dead are raised. And that revolution, God's revolution, God's kingdom, not only affected people's diseases, but also their relationships with one another and with God. And Jesus broke down the social barriers of the day between Jew and Samaritan and Gentile, between rich and poor, between men and women, 
and between slaves and free men. And Jesus taught that this kingdom, God's revolution, advances unlike every other revolution in the world, which advances through uh, military might or bloodshed. It doesn't come that way, but it advances with faith and reconciling, forgiving love. And with every act of justice and merciful deed, God's kingdom is gaining ground. So when you think of it, you see violent revolutions, in one sense, are not that revolutionary, are they? I remember saying this to you on one occasion before. Regime changes brought about by um, military might of the norm, whether it's in whichever part of our world today, Iraq, Libya, Syria. But on the other hand, what is revolutionary is a revolution which isn't violent. Think about that. That's as revolutionary as you can come. A revolution that isn't violent. But again, when you think about it, what other revolution could possibly change our world? For surely, our world is, knows by now that you cannot conquer hate with hate. And war doesn't cure war. And pride will never overcome pride. And violence will never end violence. And revenge will never stop revenge. So how did Jesus communicate this revolution to his followers and to others? I'm glad you asked. It was through the parables. It was through the parables. See, we must get away from this idea of seeing parables as illustrations, trying to make the ideas of Jesus a little bit more accessible. Or seeing them as some kind of teaching aid. The parables are stories of revolution. And I just want to lay that before you, and I'm glad that I'm able to bring this to you today, because in coming weeks, when we are reading each of those parables, parables perhaps that we know very, very well, I want us to see them in a new light, that they're parables of revolution, God's revolution in his world. And through these parables, Jesus proclaimed that God's kingdom was near, and he would tell stories about businessmen and fishermen and homemakers and shepherds and dysfunctional families and kingdoms and farmers. And sometimes, and I don't know if you've noticed this, he doesn't even mention God by name at all. But you get that feeling that that is exactly what he is talking about. So going back to Matthew 13, this reading that we read together earlier. The disciples hear Jesus' parable on the sower. And they just can't figure out what Jesus is talking about. They have ears, but they're not actually hearing what Jesus has to say. So they come to Jesus with a question. Now, if you were in their shoes, and you just heard Jesus for the very first time, okay, the parable of the solar is very well known to us, and, but it's imagine that it was the very first time you'd heard it, and you think, what, what's this all about, Jesus? Then you didn't understand. What question would you ask Jesus? You would say, Jesus... Uh, don't get it. Can you explain that, please? Can you tell me what this parable actually means? But that wasn't the question that they asked. They didn't ask, what does this mean? This is the question that they asked. Why do you speak to people in parables? No. That's a good question. But it's not the question that you would have thought that they would have asked. And Jesus answers them in the next 
three verses. I'll put those on screen for you. Verse 11 to 13. So the question is, why do you speak in parables? And the answer that Jesus gives, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. Now, that's very straightforward, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, not really. If these guys were confused before... I don't think they would have been any of the more enlightened by Jesus' response. Do you? So what's this all going on here? What's the stuff uh, about the secrets of the kingdom being given to some but not to others? And those who have been given more, um, uh, th- those who have will be given more, and those who don't have, even what they have, will be taken away from them. Is Jesus discriminating here? Is, is, is he playing favorites? And how does he relate all of this to his speaking in parables. And what did Jesus mean? Well, let me just try to explain that by just talking about us for a few moments. In this uh, auditorium this morning, as uh, a church family together, there are two very, very distinct groups. Um, There are those who are listening to this and you are hooked. Your mind is racing. You're wrestling with these words. Um, You want to dig a bit deeper. You can't wait to get home to study this stuff for yourself. You need to understand far more than you're understanding now. Well, that's four of you at least. (laughs) Then there are the others who are saying, who cares about this stuff? Who really cares about this stuff? Steve, Why don't you entertain us? Why don't you tell us some stories? Why don't you make us laugh? Why don't you make us feel good? Inspire us. There are two groups of people here. And those that listened to Jesus fell into those two groups as well. And there were those who were eager to learn more. And there were those who, because of their hardness of hearts, had no desire to hear, to really hear what Jesus was saying. They heard his words, yes but they didn't understand. So why did Jesus speak in parables? Why were his sayings and stories often subtle and difficult and difficult to grasp hold of? It's because Jesus' message through the parables was not aimed merely at conveying information. These stories that Jesus told sought to do something far more important than convey information to hearers. They were aimed at spiritual transformation, not just information. You see, the parables entice hearers into new territory. And I can imagine those people who heard Jesus give the parables on the very first occasion, they walked away debating and discussing amongst themselves what was really meant by that story and how it applied to them today. And those stories can have the same effect on us today. And I pray that they will over the next 10 weeks as we study some of them together. You see, parables both reveal and conceal the message of the kingdom of heaven. And those who have a desire to know more and wrestle with them and have that kind of attitude of Jacob, remember, I won't let you go until you bless me. 
are given actually more understanding. But those who are either too lazy or too prejudiced or simply not bothered, that truth is concealed. It's hidden. I quoted him once before, Brian McLaren. He says that the genius of a parable is this, and I'll put the words on screen. A parable doesn't grab you by the lapels and scream in your face, repent, vile sinner, turn or burn. Rather, it works gently, subtly, indirectly. It respects your dignity. It doesn't batter you into submission, but leaves you free to discover and choose for yourself. See, the parables, they invite us, they attract us, they intrigue us, they entice us, they challenge us, but they will never, ever, ever force us. You see, parables are designed to tease. They get under our skin. They tantalize us. They provoke us. And in doing so, they draw us closer to Jesus. Human kingdoms advance by force and violence with falling bombs and flying bullets. But God's kingdom, God's kingdom within us, advances through stories which entice us to trust Christ and to journey with him through our lives. Stories of revolution. That's what they are. God's revolution that was anticipated for many hundreds of years. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he says, kingdom of heaven is near. You see, what I've been speaking about this morning doesn't really require some kind of altar call or some public declaration of our faith. Uh, It doesn't require us to come to the front of the church and be prayed for. But it does require all of us to allow the words of Jesus to penetrate our hearts and not to give up too easily. Jesus said in that uh, Matthew chapter 13, in that chapter on two occasions, he who has ears, let him hear. In in effect, Jesus was saying to, to the disciples and also to us today, don't just listen with your ears. Listen with your hearts. Don't just hear my words, but hear the deeper meaning. And that requires you to make a personal investment of time, effort, and imagination. You see, the parables of Jesus aren't always easy to grasp. They're not like a a simple mathematical formula that can quickly learned and repeated. But as Brian McLaren writes again, he says, Is it possible that the message of Jesus was less like an advertising slogan, obvious and loud, and more like a poem, whose meaning only comes subtly and quietly to those who read slowly, think long and deeply, and refuse to give up. Time's gone, but food for thought. Just an introduction, that's all to this morning was. I didn't want to do more than that. I just wanted to lay the foundations of kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. That was Jesus' message. It was central to him. It was the core, the heart of where Jesus was at. And if we can begin to understand that and interpret, understand the parables through that message which was central to Jesus, I think we'll be on good foundations for the rest of the time. There's a prayer recorded, a recorded prayer of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. And I just want to pray this prayer now. I'll put it on screen. Matthew 11, verse 25 and 26 from New Living Translation. O Father, 
Lord of heaven and earth. Thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. Amen. Amen. Okay.